I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode, we're joined by Jake Colvin, Executive Director of the Global Innovation Forum, to discuss e-commerce and COVID-19. We'll break down how COVID has raised the importance of e-commerce globally, why small businesses are relying on digital tools now more than ever, and whether governments are helping or hurting the expansion of e-commerce. All this and much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. The Trade Guys are joined by a very special guest today, Mr. Jake Colvin, who is the Executive Director of the National Foreign Trade Council's Global Innovation Forum. Jake is here to discuss e-commerce and COVID-19 with us. Jake, welcome to The Trade Guys. We are all, as always in the age of COVID-19, we're all in our homes in Bethesda, Maryland, and you can tell us where you're coming from, and we can see you over Zoom, and, and you look great and healthy, and so we're glad to see you. So tell us tell us about what you're doing, where you're coming from. We're really looking forward to hearing what it's all about. Thanks, gentlemen, for having me. Really appreciate it. I am coming to you from my home in uh, the Tenleytown neighborhood of Washington, D.C. Uh, my family's upstairs working and learning, and uh, yeah, you know, I, I think uh, for us, so I, I one of the things that I do at the National Foreign Trade Council is I run our Global Innovation Forum. And so the purpose of the Global Innovation Forum is to connect small businesses with government officials uh, to talk about the opportunities and challenges that they see engaging in the global marketplace and how they're using digital tools to access those global markets. Um, So during the COVID-19 crisis, what we've been doing is we've been interviewing small businesses from all over the world to talk about how they're using digital tools more intensively than ever to uh, respond to and and, uh, operate in this uh, pandemic world. And so the constant refrain that that I hear is that small businesses everywhere, you know, no matter what you do, uh, they're using digital tools more more intensively out of necessity. You know, in many cases, there are no other options to keep them connected to their workers, customers, uh, and content, as well as their manufacturing partners. I want to bring our superheroes Trade Guy Bill Reinch and Trade Guy Scott Miller into this discussion. Trade Guys, have at it. Well, I have a question. I just got off a phone call with a a company that was talking about this, which is, what are your members, Jake, going to do as this wave of of disease passes over us eventually? Do we go back to the old normal and do things go back the way they were? Or is there going to be a new normal? All these uh, electronic e-commerce bridges that have been built are they going to keep those? And uh, I mean, is, is conventional retail a thing of the past and stores a thing of the past? And even for small guys, are they going to stick with a new normal? Sure. Thanks, Bill. I, you know, I think what this has underscored for every business and every individual, uh, as well as the government officials that we work with, uh, is the importance of digital tools. And, and I think that importance isn't going to go away. I think we are all going to be in this situation uh, as we continue through the COVID-19 crisis and, and get to whatever the new normal is, that um, you're going to see businesses, whether they're uh, large international businesses, whether they're small businesses that are interested in international, or whether they're local businesses um, that will never have an international customer, uh, they will all use digital tools more intensively than ever. And so, you know, a lot of what we do is we work with small businesses and startups who want to go international or who are already going international. 
what I've seen, you know, both in my own experience, but then also from talking from uh, some small businesses is, you know, these mom and pop shops, these local restaurants, they are using global technology tools more intensively than ever to run their business. So organic search, social media, and there's this entire payments tools, Shopify and any commerce platforms. And you've got a local restaurant in DC or a catering company like Occasions, uh, which we use frequently at the Global Innovation Forum and NFTC. Uh, they're using Shopify and Google Pay and PayPal to sign customers up for a local uh, CSA for agricultural products um, that they're using to supplement their income while uh, their catering business is shut down. Jake, this is fascinating stuff because it used to be in order to be a global business or have, have international customers, you had to have a certain scale because you had to be big enough to manage the uh, the, pay, the payment systems. You had to be, you maybe had to have a, a foreign establishment uh, to receive packaging. You had to have at least a freight forwarder or, or customs broker to handle the transaction. It seems to me these are all kind of off the shelf items at this point. How is that helping to grow this business and, and how reliable have these new tools been in a crisis time like this when all of a sudden you have lots more demand for e-commerce? I totally agree, Scott. I mean, I think maybe I'd give a couple of examples of some of the businesses that we've gotten to know. And so if you think about product-based businesses, um, they're learning to adapt through this crisis by using digital tools. So uh, we've gotten to know uh, a woman named Sasi Kimis, who runs a company called Earth Air out of Malaysia. It's a really cool ethical lifestyle brand. So they work with refugees and other at-risk populations to make really interesting bags and jewelry. I bought a piece for my wife when I was in Malaysia last year uh, and other consumer pieces. And so, you know, she's still selling those products, um, but she's pivoted her company to make personal protective equipment as well. So we had Saucy speak at a recent webinar and she put up this great slide where she outlined this universe of digital tools that she uses. And it's Everything from WhatsApp to communicate with folks, uh, to Instagram, to Shopify, to FedEx, to Intuit QuickBooks to do her bookkeeping. And so there's this entire e-commerce ecosystem of digital tools that businesses around the world use to operate internationally. And, and you're right, they're off the shelf. I mean, I guess the other thing that I would point out is that the internet has made it much easier for small businesses to get into services-based businesses. And what we're seeing is that small businesses and services sectors like health and education have seen demand go up for their digital tools. There's this cool company called Caribou out of Miami, Florida. A woman Max runs it. She developed an app to connect grandparents with kids. Uh, and so this was long before COVID-19. And they can read and color together on their app. I, I signed up for it for my kids. And so they had customers in 160 countries before the crisis. But now they're seeing that demand internationally skyrocket because of COVID-19. Well, that really is new because, you know, I remember the days when people used the power of the internet to essentially find new customers, but to actually deliver a service is both new and exciting. Now, do governments get in the way when, when this kind of stuff ha happens across borders? Yeah. So, I, you know, I think the, the challenge is, is that governments can either help or hurt. Countries can decide uh, through trade and tax policies uh, to enable access to these sorts of global services and to data flows by treating them the same way as they treat local services. Or they can decide to discourage or in some cases completely prohibit access to these digital tools by putting in place discriminatory taxes or restrictive policies. So, you know, there are some positive frameworks that have been developed that sort of enable this e-commerce ecosystem to function 
So if you look at the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Free Trade Agreement, if you look at the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, they contain digital trade and customs provisions to ensure that businesses across North America and, and the Asia-Pacific have access to the e-commerce ecosystem. Uh, you know, you're hopeful to see other similar agreements between the United States and the United Kingdom and, and perhaps Kenya in the future. But certainly governments can also make it more difficult or impossible for small businesses to access these global tools. Uh, and so maybe just wanted to highlight a couple. You know, first, there are countries including in Europe, uh, as well as India, who have adopted or who are considering discriminatory taxes on digital services. And if these policies are implemented, those kinds of discriminatory taxes are likely to make access to digital payments and cloud tools, all of the things that, you know, SASI and, and others use to run their business more expensive. Or it could cause companies to consider not offering those services at all in, in some of those local markets. And so I, I think on that one in particular, I'm worried that we'll see more countries look to impose those sorts of taxes as responses to COVID-19. It just, which to me, you know, listening to all of these stories of small businesses seems like exactly the wrong response at this time where, you know, all these digital tools are really a lifeline for these small businesses. That's a really interesting argument that will come in handy later on because so far, the digital services tax issue has sort of been characterized as, as a fight between EU governments and big companies. You know, it's a fight with Google, it's a fight with Apple, it's a fight with companies that provide the services. And you've made an interesting point, which is that the victim in the end of the tax is not necessarily going to be Google. The victim is going to be all the people that use the services it provides, which means a whole bunch of small people. Well, and uh, if you look at what has happened since France imposed their first digital services tax, uh, the universe of targets has gotten a lot bigger. If you look at what India just put in place with expanding its equalization levy, uh, if you look at what Indonesia has proposed doing with respect to imposing digital tariffs on intangible goods, electronically delivered goods, those sorts of measures go far beyond a couple of companies. They hit a range of cloud service providers, of payment providers, and so you're all of a sudden, you know, looking at, at that whole ecosystem of e-commerce services that are now subject to or potentially subject to discriminatory taxes. I hate to say it, but don't you think there's some, this is inevitable. Uh, this is just too big a pot of revenue for governments to pass up, don't you think? Hard to say. I mean, I think, you know, there there are some responsible actors out there and, and we're in the process of negotiating free trade agreements with some of them or, or have already. And so... You know, you could see other countries seek to impose these digital taxes. I, I think ultimately at the end of the day, whether it's for revenue reasons or, or because of this idea that India has put forward that um, they want to protect their uh, sort of import substitution for the digital age, they want to protect their local technology industry. I, I just think ultimately it hurts small businesses in those countries and makes them less competitive vis-a-vis -vis countries like the United States who are putting in place these sort of more open and non-discriminatory practices. Well, I think it's fair to say in the post-pandemic period here, there's not a single government on the face of the earth that doesn't need more revenue. They're all businesses down, so they're regular things like sales taxes or, or the regular tax base has shrunk. And at the same time, the issue a lot of parking tickets. So, uh, yeah, I think there'll be tickets for jaywalking in D.C. or, you know, <laughs> or walking too fast on the sidewalk or something right. like that. Put up speed cameras for pedestrians. Uh, there's going to be lots of creative <laughs> revenue 
I, ex- I expect your your businesses, the small businesses, might see this as e-commerce. Yeah, no, and and uh, undoubtedly, I mean, you're exactly right that there will be a need for more revenue. I, I think you know we're just trying to make the point that this is not the right pot to grab from. Jake, let me ask you, what about education? You mentioned higher education and e-commerce tools. Tell us a little bit about that and how you see that business. Look, I mean, I, I think education is one of the industries that uh, will be fundamentally changed by the coronavirus crisis. And so, you know, I've heard anecdotally from some of the companies that we work with that there is increased demand for education for ed tech services, for example, which, you know, definitely makes sense as as the parent of, of two young girls who uh, are using uh, their own entire suite of e-commerce uh, services and platforms. So, you know, my expectation is, is that you would see greater demand and, and you know, more businesses getting into this space because it, it makes sense financially. I think maybe, you know, with respect to um, education and then also if you look at medicine, uh, there are specific industry requirements country by country that make it a little bit more difficult to just kind of plug and play for businesses across jurisdictions. And so, you know, one thing, uh, maybe just transitioning over to, uh, to medicine, uh, we've gotten to know a company called Portal Telemedicina in Brazil. And so before COVID-19, the company had partnered with Google and they built a remote diagnostic service that could detect diseases by looking at x-rays. And they were treating patients remotely in areas of Latin America and Africa. Now they've adapted that technology to work with clinics and hospitals using their algorithm to detect signs of COVID-19. But what they're facing is, if you think about a physical service like Doctors Without Borders, they can go into countries around the world on a temporary basis and provide their services in person because the local regulations permit that. What For Telemedicina, um, there are a number of countries around the world that prohibit them from providing their services electronically across borders. And so, you know what, they've made this pitch to the World Health Organization, the World Trade Organization, that in order to be able to deliver their services electronically, they need a change in local regulation. And I suspect that's the same for a a number of educational services around the world. Now, what is the motivation for governments in that situation? Is this a privacy issue from the standpoint of governments? It depends on the country. I know, I, I know for telemedicine, there are privacy issues in different jurisdictions around the world. There could be licensing issues. And so it, it depends on the specific kind of case study that you're looking at. In some cases, it's just they're slow. Uh, I mean, for instance, six months ago, if you were a Medicare patient, your doctor could not be reimbursed for a telephone consultation. All right. And this is the United States. <laughs> Probably and 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 many many users of, of Medicare and it was a very it was a post COVID outbreak change to our own regulations that allowed doctors to to actually be able to do phone consultations and get paid. So sometimes it's just a trailing uh, a trailing problem. Yeah, and and you know often, sometimes when you explain it to the to the country, it's well we didn't mean to do that. And no, so no, it, it's like. But, it, you know, the phone was invented, you know, over 100 years ago, and so we're now we're just now using it. Right. Let's talk a little bit about online shopping. There's been a boom in online shopping here in the United States and globally in some places. Do you see that as here to stay? And, and what are the impacts of that? It depends what you're selling. But, you know, there, there certainly has been an increase in online shopping, which could ultimately bode well for some direct-to-consumer brands which are, uh, you know, particularly in the work from home space. You know, I think the challenge for some of the direct consumer brands that I've gotten to know is 
you know, you're not going to work right now. And so the demand for uh, online custom suits or uh, expensive messenger bags has, has dried up. But so, you know, I think for me, what, what, what my own shopping and, and has brought home to me as, as well as the businesses that I've spoken with is just the importance of how digital enables physical. So, you know, what, what we see now are digital tools, you know, whether they're marketing tools like Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, online search, payment services, the, the Shopify's, the Amazon's, the, the Ebay's and Etsy's of the world. All of these online platforms are enabling local sales, physical manufacturing in an unprecedented way. And in order for that to happen, and in order for those online orders to be fulfilled physically, you need the right customs practices and policies in place. Do we currently have them or? Uh, well, I, you know, I, I think what Sasi told me, as well as a couple of other entrepreneurs, is that customs clearance and for her figuring out uh, what the tariffs are around the world are the most important and frustrating issues for their companies. And so, you know, I do think the United States has something close to a gold standard when it comes to customs practices and policies, which are sort of codified in things like the USMCA trade agreement. There are other countries around the world where if they had improved customs policies, whether it's online access to information, separating electronic payments from the physical crossing of the border of a package, expedited clearance procedures for, uh, for shipments, you know, those sorts of things go a long way in helping facilitate, you know, the journeys of these small businesses who rely on overseas sales to get where they're supposed to go in order to um, to satisfy their international customers. The Trump administration, did, despite the president's love for steel and cars, uh, seems to get it on digital trade and has produced, whether it's USMCA or Japan agreements, produced agreements that are a real step forward on the digital economy. Are they helpful in every way? I mean, I understand that de minimis is pretty important to small. I'm just going to say they're going to screw up de minimis. That's not exactly helpful. Yeah, that's how. How does that work out? And have you have you been able to get through to them on on something like de minimis, which we will explore with you? You can explain to our listeners. Sure. So, well, it, you know, de minimis refers to the fact that um, in countries around the world, including in the United States, there is often a threshold under which packages can come in without paying a duty, without paying a tariff and without extensive uh, paperwork procedures. And so in the United States, that threshold is $800. And so uh, if you're selling from elsewhere into the United States, if your package is under $800, uh, you don't pay a duty or uh, or have to fill out extensive paperwork. I, you know, I, I think we believe and, and we hear from the small businesses that we work with that de minimis is an important concept in the United States and around the world. You know, ultimately what we would like to see is more countries raising their de minimis threshold to a level like the United States has uh, in order to facilitate that e-commerce infrastructure around the world. I think the United States has seen benefits because of its higher de minimis threshold, including with respect to developing the e-commerce ecosystem and that, that sort of physical infrastructure that um, that all these small businesses in the United States are, are relying on right now. Well, you know, one thing that, that many, many people who think about this see it as an advantage for importers, but also small exporters benefit from de minimis because of the importance of returns to any any retail business. And so when you need to have a return, which is kind of, if you sell anything, you, you need to have a returns policy. An international customer of a U.S. small business has a much easier time dealing with the returns because of the U.S.'s high de minimis. 
Well, that's right. And and also um, with respect to importing small quantities of, of inputs that are then put into small businesses products uh, right. that are that are then sold domestically or exported. I thought the trade facilitation agreement was supposed to take care of all this beyond de minimis. Is that accomplishing anything or not? The WTO's trade facilitation agreement, it was a really important milestone. And it, it remains really important because a number of countries around the world uh, are continue to be in the process of implementing. Um, and so, uh, you know, that agreement uh, really started the process um, to try to level up countries towards better customs procedures. You know, I think what we're arguing is that more can be done uh, because a, a lot of the commitments in the trade facilitation agreement that was uh, finalized a couple of years ago were sort of best endeavors. And so they were countries committed to try to do the right thing, uh, but not all of them are, are going to get there as uh, quickly, if, if at all. And so, you know, what we're looking at going forward, and there's this new effort at the World Trade Organization around e-commerce, uh, is to try to emphasize that there are areas in customs and trade facilitation where countries can do more if they want to enable this physical trade um, and e-commerce. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. What's your prognosis for the e-commerce negotiation? Is it going anywhere? I mean, right now, nobody's going anywhere. But what's it, do you, does it have a future or not? I mean, I think it's it's really interesting. And, and maybe just to step back, the, a number of member countries are working together at the World Trade Organization to try to develop this um, new framework for e-commerce. You know, negotiators were working to develop uh, a text of an agreement in time for a big meeting of trade ministers that was supposed to have happened this June, and that was postponed because of the crisis. And so, you know, it's interesting for me because um, the pandemic has made these negotiations much more urgent. Uh, and I get a real sense from the negotiators that I speak with that the COVID crisis really sort of underscores the importance of this effort. You know, government officials who are now, you know, all using these digital platforms are, are seeing in a very tangible way how critical access to, to these technologies are um, for themselves and for the businesses in their countries. But, you know, at the same time, the logistics are a lot more complicated. And so it's real hard for 80 countries to negotiate solely with digital platforms. First of all, just in terms of bandwidth, uh, many trade negotiators are responding to the COVID-19 crisis. And so they're just not available for the negotiations. But there's also kind of a, a differential in abilities to access technology, um, as well as restrictions that individual governments put on what kinds of platforms and technology standards that their negotiators can use. So, you know, they're working through some of these technical issues, which I think is going to make it challenging to make quick progress. But I, I'm hopeful that we will see some milestones uh, this year with respect to you know, an announcement about progress on the negotiations. What gives you the most optimism in your space going forward? The thing that I'm most optimistic about is, is hearing the stories of the entrepreneurs that we speak to about how resilient they are uh, and about no matter, you know, what kind of a journey they are on, that they are responding and getting by and, and doing their best um, to, to take care of their workers and to interact with their customers and to keep their community knitted together. And, and you know, as they tell those stories, um, they're using digital tools to do all of that. And so I'm optimistic that the importance of digital tools has really hit home, not only for the businesses that, you know, have always used them probably without really thinking much about them, um, but also for government officials who, in addition to developing their COVID-19 economic recovery plans ought to be thinking about how they enable these digital tools uh, to keep these small businesses connected and operating as, as best they can. 
You know, it's like the old uh, show business expression, nothing succeeds like success. And <laughs> you seem to be on that, you know, the, your people are having success with the technology and that boosts the appeal of the entire industry. That's right. Jake Colvin, thank you for being with us today. We hope to have you back. You've given us a lot to think about. Trade guys, we will see you next week. Same bat time, same bat channel, same Bethesda. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. Thank you, Trade Guys. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.